Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we're continuing on with our study of worship. And we've been talking over these last few weeks or months really about a side of this which is God's side of worship, which is His own desire. We understand that when we come to church, just as we've uh, looked at a quick video about marriage, that we all have expectations. Some of your expectations this morning were high, very high, expecting much. Some of your expectations may have been a very low, but you come in expecting something. But God comes here expecting something and desiring something. God desires to do something in our lives and to do something here uh, in our midst in a way that is so clearly Him that it demonstrates His power and His love and His grace. We've seen this morning a, a, a small, just a small demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12 says that the gifts of the Spirit are given to the church to manifest or make known the Spirit of God in a setting just like this. What that means is to make clear, make clear to our senses two things, that God actually exists and is here, and secondly, what He's like. And we see that God is here and that God cares about people's needs and wants to meet us where we are. We saw Jesus meeting a woman at the well in John chapter 4, and we saw this encounter with Him with her was in such a way that he was bringing her from just an awareness of the fact that there was water and she needed water and there was a guy from Jew, a Jew there with her and looking at everything from a natural perspective to recognizing that this was God that he, she was meeting with and the opportunities that she was meeting with God. And we've taken from that some understanding that every time we come together, God's perspective is that he wants to be here with us, that we are had to have an encounter together with God Himself and what God wants to do. What we've seen this morning is just a mere taste of what God wants to do. But we limit what He can do by our expectations. We limit what He can do by our, our perspective. And Jesus was trying to take this woman and get her from looking at Him as just a Jewish man to recognizing that at least that He was a prophet and ultimately to recognize that He was God's Son, the Messiah, that was visiting so we've gone back looking at God's desire and looked from the very beginning and we've seen how God started in the garden and He walked with man and he, he, there was no restrictions and there was nothing holding back and how God then, how they sinned and that sin created this enormous gulf between God and man because sin separates us from God. And we've talked about that before. We're not going to go back over that. We've looked at how God created a people for Himself, the Jewish nation, but He didn't choose a nation. He chose a man, Abram. And through this man, He formed a nation for Himself a people for himself that he could be among. We saw that God took Moses and brought him up on a mountain and gave him the pattern for a tabernacle, a series of tents, so that God could come and dwell in their midst, even though it was in a very limited form, over the top of this Ark of the Covenant in a cloud of fire, a pillar of fire by day, night and a cloud of fire in the daytime. We saw that then when, they, when that ark came into the promised land and they, they started worshiping the ark instead of the presence of God, that the presence of God left and all manner of sin came in. And we studied Eli and his sons and we looked at, at how bad things got, bad to the point that finally the ark of the covenant was taken by their, their mortal enemies, the Philistines, and that 
Eventually they brought it back and by that time David, King David is king and he eventually brings it into to the city of David to Mount Zion and has a tent structure there called the tabernacle. So we have the tent, the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. We have the tabernacle of David and Mount Zion. And when David worships it, the presence of God comes back. We saw David looking out from his palace at, the, at this tent that God's presence dwelled in saying, this isn't right. I dwell in this beautiful house that's gold and silver and ivory and God's presence dwells in tents and we saw God speak back to David and said but I didn't ask you to build a house for me so we need to learn from that to do what God asks not what we think is best for God but he says I do want you to build one but you're not going to build it your son's going to build it and so Solomon constructs this temple beautiful temple and when it's finished and he's done everything he's supposed to do we see how God's presence comes into the place in a cloud and then eventually God's glory shows up to the point that they couldn't even enter in because of the power and the presence of God this is in the Old Testament they weren't children of God they didn't have the Spirit of God living in them it was God's desire to be among his people and then we saw that we go through a period where where God's presence is gone again because they fall into idolatry. The nation goes, they gets divided. Solomon, when Solomon dies, his son takes over and he doesn't handle things well and the nation's divided into two nations, ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And basically the ark is lost for a while. We don't know what happened to it. There's a short revival under a southern king named Josiah who finds the ark and brings it back in and then at the end of his life it disappears again and it, uh, uh, it may have been in the temple, it may not have been in the temple but we know this, that around 500 B.C. that King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in to, to destroy the temple and he takes everything out of the temple and takes it back to Babylon with him. He takes most of the children of Israel back with him and, but the ark is not accounted for and the tradition, Jewish tradition says that Jeremiah right before Nebuchadnezzar came bought some land at, at Mount Nebo and, and buried the ark there but the reality is we don't know where it is and a number of years ago Steven Spielberg made a lot of money over the speculation of where the ark of the covenant may be and had a series of movies based, or a movie based around it which was very popular but we don't know where it is and what we've looked at is that the Ark of the Covenant, it's not the Ark itself. It's that the Ark was God, what God chose so that He could dwell there. And whenever the people took their eyes off of God's dwelling there and got their eyes on the things that they could see and touch, God's presence disappeared. And we deal with that today because we have a church, and I'm not talking just about Faith Christian Center, but the church today, especially in the Western church, is so conscious of the things, the things of God physical things of God that we've, we've lost a heart for the presence of God himself. But I believe God's calling us back to that. God's calling us back to that. And that really is going to be, I believe, a lot of the focus for this year. And so then we look last week as there's a long period of silence and then we see in, the, in Matthew, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, that that silence is broken because God begins to speak again. And God announces to a young, a young teenage virgin who's engaged to a man named Joseph that God is going to visit again. God's presence is coming again. But this time God's presence is not going to come in a pillar of fire and a cloud. God's presence is going to come into her womb. And God says to her through the angel Gabriel, I have chosen you. You are favored among women. And the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and He's going to conceive in you the Son of God, the Holy Son of God. 
We looked last week that God's next step in His desire to be among us was that God came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus. And when He he dwelt among us, so God could now touch us. God could now look in our eyes. God could now sympathize and understand what we go with through and struggle with because of our flesh. Because before that, God had never worn flesh and God could not understand. He could not sympathize with it. He could understand it, but He couldn't sympathize with it. Sympathizing is when you share the emotion of something. But if you've never experienced something, it's very hard to share the emotion of it. And we ended last time by looking in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says Jesus has become a faithful high priest to you and me because he took, God took on flesh. He was able to be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, of our infirmities, of the things that we strive with, and yet he never gave in to them. As a result, he can be a faithful high priest so that we can come to him with confidence and boldness when you're struggling, when you're in time of need. You can come to receive help. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it was a throne of judgment. But in the New Testament, it's a throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Because God took on flesh and dwelt among us. What we're going to look at today is God wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied with just walking among us. Because you see, there were limitations, and God doesn't like limitations. Jesus could only be in one place at one time. So you could only be in the presence of God by being where Jesus physically was. Not only that, he was limited in terms of the degree of intimacy that he could have because his relationship with the men that were with him and the women that were around him, his relationship was people, with people was through their senses, through the things that they saw, the things that they heard of him. And he wasn't satisfied with that. So there was another step, another level that he wanted to go to, which is what we're going to look at today. But in order to do that, we're going to take a step back and look at again at this incarnation of God taking on flesh, because there's an aspect of it that's very important for us to understand. Because Jesus did not just come just to die on the cross for us. I mean, if that's all He came to do, I am grateful because that means I don't have to go to hell, and neither do you, and I can go to heaven, and so can you. So that's all, but the gospel's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus came to look to, so that he could become a faithful high priest for us, but he had another reason to come. Now, when they design new cars and, I guess, other products too, they'll often create an example, uh, uh, what they call a prototype. A prototype is an advanced version of something which they'll then put on display and show off to show what it can do. It may be a car, it may be, I know, maybe a new computer, I don't know, you know, whatever, a new model of something to show you in a tangible way what this is like. Well, another purpose of Jesus coming is he was a prototype. He was an example of something, and that's what we're going to look at today. He was a living, breathing, tangible example of something God wanted to do so that men and women could see the next step and next phase that God has. So in order to understand that, as I said, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to quickly look back at Jesus before He came. We looked last time in John chapter 1, we saw John's version of that. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. That means the Word was Him. 
It's the second person of the Godhead. We saw verse 14, which says that word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. God took on flesh, the second person of the Godhead. The word of God here was Godhead, was born through that woman's womb and took on flesh. All God, all man. But let's look back and see with what he did when he came down. Philippians 2 Verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's saying that, that Jesus, or the Word, before He took on flesh, was equal with the God the Father. So to, to, to consider Himself equal wasn't robbery. Robbery is when you take something you're not entitled to. So this verse is saying when he decided, when he when his view of himself was that he was equal with God it wasn't robbery he was taking what he was entitled to because he was equal with God He was God in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God he was in the beginning So in the before he took on flesh he was equal with God equal glory equal majesty equal power Verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation. What that actually says in the Greek is he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, which is an emptying out of yourself. See what I got in my pockets. Nothing. Sometimes the only way you know what's in there is to turn it inside out, is to empty it out. So this verse says that when he, when he came down and took on flesh, he emptied out something of himself. And we're going to see what that was. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied out, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Now don't mistake that to mean, and we talked a little bit about this last week, don't mistake that to think that coming in the likeness of men means he wasn't a man. The likeness of man was, and we talked about this last week, his flesh was a little different than yours. It bled, we know it bled, because it bled when they drove nails through it. It got tired because he slept on the back of a ship. It had the same limitations your flesh and my flesh did. The difference is your flesh was born and my flesh was born with a tendency to sin. Remember I used the example last week of a car coming off the assembly line with its wheels in perfect alignment the way the manufacturer designed so that when you take that car out on a highway on 195, assuming it's level, you take your hands off the wheel, that car is going to track straight ahead because the wheels are in perfect alignment the way they were intended by the manufacturer. But you drive it around in New England in the wintertime and you hit a few potholes, what happens? And you park too close to some curbs, what happens is those wheels now get jolted out of alignment. You can still drive, but the, when they're out of alignment, the car has a tendency to pull one way or another. It has a bent in a certain direction. So you've got to constantly be counteracting that or else you'll go off the road. From You'll end up in a ditch on one side or the other. Adam was born with his wheels in alignment. 
with his flesh capable of sin. We know that because he did, but without the tendency to do that. Once he sinned, he hit a pothole that you and I have been dealing with for ever since we were born because all flesh born from him had that same tendency to go off the road. And we all know what I'm talking about. Jesus was born with flesh like the first Adam. It was all flesh, but it was born without the tendency to go out of alignment. But if he had a pothole, if he had ever sinned, bump, his wheels were out of alignment also. But that's why it's important in Hebrews 4, 16, when it says, 15, when it says, he was tempted in all ways of sin, yet he did not sin. Now, I mentioned last week that when you're born again and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is power steering. So the bent may still be there, but if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is a power to keep your on track even though your flesh has a bent to go one direction or the other. So when it talks about the likeness of flesh, that's what it means. It doesn't mean he wasn't flesh. It means his flesh was like ours, but it wasn't out of line the way ours was. All right. Verse 8. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. All right. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 3. Let's talk a little bit about what it is he emptied himself from. Luke 3, verse 21. Jesus is 30 years of age here. We know that up until this point, although he grew up, obviously as a young boy, a child, a young boy, and a young man, obviously he grew up without sinning because the Bible says he didn't sin. But he had performed no miracles. We know he hadn't performed miracles. There are really two reasons I know of. There may be more. One, because it says in John chapter 2 that when he changed the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, that was the first miracle he did, which means he hadn't done any before. The other reason is because later on in Luke, when he comes back to his hometown, they can't figure out why he's now suddenly doing miracles. Because they say, isn't this little Jesus who grew up here? Isn't this the son of Joseph and of Mary? We saw the kid walking in the street, which means at five years of age, he wasn't healing the blind eyes. At eight years of age, he wasn't raising the dead. At 12, he wasn't casting out demons. He was just a very good boy in that community and in that, ta in that synagogue. He didn't have a halo around his head. There was nothing particularly unusual about him except that he was a good, righteous boy and then young man. Because you see, one of the things he laid aside, we see in Philippians 2, he laid aside the glory of God and the power of God. He emptied himself of those. We're going to get there, maybe today, in John 17, because at the end of his earthly walk, in his last public prayer before God, he asked to be, have that glory restored to him. He said, give again to me the glory that I had before. Well, if you've got to give it to you again, that means he didn't have it. 
for a period of time. Now, some people get upset at that, but it's what the Word teaches. So Jesus laid aside the glory. He laid aside the presence of God. He laid aside the power that he had in him that was innate, innate to being God, the second person of the Godhead. Because if you go and read in Colossians and a number of other places, you'll find out that God, when the world was created, it was created at the will of the Father, but it was created through Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, before he became Jesus. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So he had the power to create the universe, but he put that all aside. He emptied himself of that and took on the form of a man. But at 30 years of age, it became time for him to enter into his public ministry and begin to demonstrate the power and the character of God. So look what happens. Look how this happens. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And when he prayed, the heaven was opened. Now, if you look at Matthew's account of this, John the Baptist argues with him and says, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we must fulfill the requirement of the law. We must fulfill what was written. He prayed, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove upon him. Now, let me just, a little side note here. If you have doves in your house and on your dashboard and all that, don't throw them out. I understand what it means. It doesn't say a dove came down. It doesn't say a dove came down. Because the Holy Spirit is more powerful than a dove. It said he came down as a dove. The way a dove would come down. A dove would float down. So the Holy Spirit didn't drop like that. He came down gently upon him. This is so important to understand for where we're going. Descended in bodily form as a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in chapter 4, the spirit in him now leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm not going to get into why because there's a reason for that. And then it says when he returned, he returned in the power, listen carefully, he returned in the power of the Spirit. It doesn't say he returned in the power of God. It doesn't say he returned in the power of the second person of the Godhead. He returned in the power of the Spirit. So what this teaches us is this. When God, the second person of the Godhead, came here and took on flesh, he emptied himself of all of his innate power and glory as the second person of the Godhead and became a man. God, but man, without the glory and the power. 
when he's 30 years of age and ready to step into his ministry, he comes to be baptized. And when he's baptized, heaven opens up and the Holy Spirit descends on him, fills him now with the power of God. So the power that Jesus operated in, in his three and a half years of ministry, the power by which he raised the dead, the power by which he cast out devils, the power by which he opened blind eyes, the power by which he spoke to storms and they were still, the power by which he walked on water, the power by which he did everything was not because he was the second person of the Godhead and had some special privilege. That wouldn't help us. It was by the power and the anointing of the third person of the Godhead who had now come inside of him. So Jesus was a prototype of the normal Christian. He didn't do what he did through some special power that he had because of the privileged position he came from. He laid that privilege aside. This is good. This runs right in the face of religion, which worships him for what he did, which is wonderful. But when we do that, we keep him up on stained glass windows. We keep him places where we look up to him, which we should worship and look up to him. But then what, good, what does that do for us in terms of what we're supposed to do? So we see the church as weak. We see us as Christians as weak. Well, we're just subject to whatever happens. He wasn't. All right, you'll get, some of you get this in a minute. All right, let's move on. Let's go to John chapter 14. So in the three plus years that Jesus ministered in his public ministry, he performed miracles. I mean, see, I was raised to think Jesus healed people and performed miracles to prove who he was. Well, first of all, he didn't need to prove who he was. He knew who he was. When you know who you are, you don't have to prove it to people. And it becomes obvious to the others. But if that's all he had to do, all he had to do is perform one miracle and heal one person. But there are verses, and I've collected them together, where it has untold numbers. It's just multitudes came to him. Why would he have to heal the multitudes if he's just trying to prove? The other thing is, there were a number of people that he healed. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and then told him, don't go tell anybody. That's a lousy way to advertise. Oh, well, pastor, it's reverse psychology. Reverse psychology is, in essence, lying. Telling one thing when you really mean something else, and God can't do that because God can only tell the truth. So Jesus didn't do those things to advertise who he was. He did those out of compassion and caring for people. And he's the same today. He's just as compassionate. He's just as caring today. Say, why don't we see more of it done? Because we don't believe. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand how Jesus did this. So now in John chapter 14, we're coming to the end of his public ministry. And he's ministered publicly to the group, and now he's meeting with his most closest disciples. He's now with the 11, because Judas is now gone. And he's preparing them. This is how compassionate he is. You read through this sometimes and, and read it from a, from, as the Lord preparing them for the shock they were about to have. 
Because for three plus years, God's walked, lived with them. For three plus years, they haven't had to wonder what the will of God is. They just have to hear what Jesus says and do it. For three plus years, they had peace because even in the middle of a storm, they knew where to go. They woke him up on the back of the boat. For three plus years, even when they were afraid in a storm and saw something out in the water, they could cry out to him and know that he could still the storm. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen a demonic man that literally controlled a region in Gadara where you, couldn't, you could not go down this road to get to the city because this demon-possessed man, thousand demons in him, would come out in supernatural power and drive people away. And they've seen God in the flesh speak one word. And those thousand demons left him and went into a bunch of pigs and drove them down into the water. And the man sat in his right mind. They've seen amazing things. They've seen him take a little boy's lunch Bless it and divide it up and fill probably 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men without regard to the women and children. And another time feed 4,000. They've watched things multiply in his hands and been amazed and said that God would give such authority to a man. The peace that they had, that whenever they had a question, they could come to him Whenever they were anxious, they could reach over at night and just kind of touch him wherever he may be sleeping. That they, God could put his arm around them and make them feel better. What a comfort that must be. And now Jesus knows that's all about the change. And so John 14, 15, and 16, he sees preparing them for this change. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Hear the compassion in that? You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, now the New King James says, are many mansions. And there are songs written about our mansion in heaven. But I've got to tell you, that's not what that's talking about. Because the word there that's translated mansion in the New King James is a very particular word in Greek. It's moine, which means literally a dwelling place. It's not referring to a house. There's a different word for house. That's oikia. This is dwelling place or any place where you can remain. I'm going to prepare a place, a, a dwelling place, a, a, a place where, a, a, where somebody can live. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So we always read this through and think of this as heaven but I want you to challenge you to expand your understanding this morning. Where I go, you know, and you know the way. But Thomas said to Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, for it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. Whoa. Jesus is saying the Father, God, 
the first person of the Godhead dwells in him in his flesh. But the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. In other words, all these miracles you've seen, all the things we've just talked about, I didn't do them, Jesus is saying. It was the Father dwelling in me that did that. Now, how did the Father dwell in him? When did the Father come to dwell in him? When he was baptized in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit's God's Spirit, came down and took up residence in Jesus of Nazareth. That's why he could now begin to perform the miracles. If he had brought his own glory from heaven, he could have performed the miracles in his own power. But then he wouldn't be a prototype for you and me. But he laid all that aside so that he could... Can you imagine how humbling that was? No, we can't. How humbling it was. Imagine, you've got the power innate in you to create the universe with your words and you give it up. You set it aside to come and become someone like you or me. Why would he do that? That's how much he loves you. That's how far he was willing to come for you and me. That's how much he was willing to set aside. That's why it says, have that same mind in you that was in him, because we're to have that same mind towards one another. Jesus is saying, don't you understand? All the things you've seen me do, I didn't do them. It was the Father dwelling in me. So if you've seen me, you've seen him. So if you want to know if it's God's will to heal, look at what God did in Jesus when he walked on the earth. Let me ask you a question. Can you find in the Bible one example of someone that Jesus said no to when they came and asked him for healing? You won't find it because I've searched. There's no example where Jesus said, look, you need to keep this condition so that you can learn something from it. There's not an Don't you think there'd be at least one if that's what God was like? Because he'd have to exhibit that through his presence on the earth, but you can't find one. The only one he said no to was the Syrophoenician woman, and that was just to test her faith. Because when he said no to her, she wouldn't quit. She said, well, at least the children get to eat off the, the, the bread that falls on the ta- off the table. And he said, he, that's the only two people he's ever said had great faith. It was hers and the centurion. Notice neither of them were Jews. So it's up to your faith. So Jesus came to show what the Father was like, only did things by the Father doing them in Him. All right, let's move on. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe me because of the sake of the works themselves. In other words, if you don't believe what I'm saying, just look at the works that He did through me. Most assuredly I say to you, that he who believes in me, the works that I did, shall he do also. Most assuredly, I say to you. Now, Jesus never lied, but when he starts saying, most assuredly, he's emphasizing something. Because it's going to jolt our senses. Most assuredly, I say to you, you, you 11 disciples who believe in me. No, that's not what it says, does it? It says, he who believes in me. 
Let me ask you a question. How many in here believe in him? That he's talking to you and he's talking to me. He who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. Now I've heard so many people say, yeah, that's talking about preaching the gospel and it's talking about getting people saved. But Jesus, if you look at what Jesus did, the two things he did most was to teach the gospel and to heal the sick. The works that I do shall you do also. So that means those people that teach that are taking at least one half of what he did and excluding it. But that's not what he says. The works that I do shall you do also and greater works because I go to the Father. How can that happen? That's what we're going to see. How can we do greater works because he goes to the Father? Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And look what's going to happen. Verse 16. And I will pray. I will ask the Father. Do you believe his prayers are answered? So this prayer must have been answered. I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. Now, there are two Greek words for another. There's the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. That's not this word. The other Greek word for other is alos, A-L-L-O-S, which means another of exactly the same kind, a duplicate. So Jesus is saying, if you, if you believe in me and you'll do what I say and I'll pray and ask the Father, he's going to give you another helper, a helper that's exactly like the helper you already have. Now the word helper there is comforter in some languages. It's the Greek word paraclete, not parakeet, that's a bird. Paraclete with an L in there. It's made up of two parts of the word. There's the basic word, which is kaleo, which means to call someone, to come here. And the, be- the, the prefix is para, which means along with. So this word means someone that's been called to be along with you. Someone that's been called to stay along with you, to help you, to counsel you, to strengthen you. What Jesus is saying is, there, and I'm going to show you clearly in a minute, that I'm going to ask the Father, see, remember he's preparing, I'm leaving. But I'm going to leave, and I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you a substitute for me. Another version of me. that he may abide with you forever. I'm leaving. I've only been here a temporary time, but my replacement is going to abide with you forever. He's not leaving. Whether you're awake or you're asleep, whether you feel him or you don't feel him, Jesus said he will be with you forever. And then he goes on and tells us, verse 70, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. So you know who I'm talking about. And look at this. 
you know him, for he dwells with you. He has been, you know him, because he has been dwelling with you. How had the Spirit of God been dwelling with the disciples? He'd been dwelling with them because he was in Jesus. So it says, you know who I'm talking about. It's the Spirit who's dwelled in me. The world doesn't understand. They can't see him, but you've seen him because you've seen him work through me. So you know who I'm talking about because he has been with you. Look at the rest of that verse. But he will now be in you. In other words, I'm going to ask the Father because I'm leaving. And he's going to send another version of me who is the Holy Spirit who has been living in me and he's therefore been with you. But now he's going to come and dwell directly in you. Now go with me over to John six, John 17. No, John 16, excuse me. Verse 5. Oh, this gets better. Verse 5. But now I'm going away to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Wait a minute, Jesus. Ah, oh, come on. Now, wait a minute. How can it be to our advantage that you're going away? I mean, this has been pretty good. Uh, this has been better than we could ever imagine. We've seen storms quelled. We've seen water walked on. We've seen our needs taken care of. We got out on a boat one day to go into the other side and realized we forgot to bring food with us. And you rebuked us and said, don't you learn the lessons of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? It doesn't matter what you have with you. It's who you have with you. They've seen all that. And he's telling them, it's to your advantage. I can understand it's to Jesus' advantage to go back. But he's saying it's to your advantage that I leave. Well, he's going to explain to them why it's to their advantage. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the replace for me cannot come to you. But if I depart, I will send them to you. Why is it better for the Holy Spirit to come and replace Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit was God's power in Jesus. So in order to get here from God, in order to see God work, in order for the power of God to work, they had to go where Jesus was. He could only be in one place at one time. But Jesus said, this is better. This is how you're going to do more works. Because where God's been dwelling only on the earth in me, now because I go to the cross, because I've paid the price for your sin, because I'm going to give you the ability to become righteous by taking your sin and giving you my righteousness, now that qualifies you to be a child of God, just like I've been a child of God. And remember what God said at that when, the, when Jesus was baptized? Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased... 
The Holy Spirit was the evidence of God's being pleased and the proof that He was God's Son. And Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins so that He would be legally give you His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And He gave you His righteousness so that you could be called, you could become a child of God. And the proof that you're a child of God is God sent forth His Spirit to dwell in you just as He did in that first son when He came up out of the Jordan River. It's to your advantage that I leave you because if I leave you, I'm going to ask the Father. Now, here's the advantage. God's presence wasn't dwelling in a tent. God's presence wasn't dwelling in Solomon's temple. God's presence had been dwelling physically among them. They could hear Him and talk to Him. They didn't fall down in His presence. They could receive from Him. And now He's saying, because I'm going to do what I'm about to do, God's presence is no longer going to be in a tabernacle, a temple, or in me. God's presence is going to come and literally dwell in you. God's getting closer to what He's wanted. Remember in the beginning in the garden, God had this man and this woman with unbroken connectiveness to them, nothing separating them. He could commune with them, fellowship with them, love on them, be loved by them. Sin created that separation. All these things we've gone through has been because of sin. And now God's heart, his, what He's longed for is going to happen. God's going to have the opportunity now to not just dwell in a tent, not just dwell in a, in a stone and gold and ivory temple, God's not even going to just dwell in one man walking on the earth, but God will now have the ability to literally come in, in His glory and in His Spirit to dwell in everyone who would open their heart to Him. John chapter 17. Here Jesus is praying. This is his high priestly prayer. He's praying to his Father before he goes to the cross, where it starts out by saying, Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son with the, that your Son may glorify you as you've given him authority on all, over all flesh that he should have eternal life as many as have given to him. So he asked for this glory, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, give me back what I gave up when I came down here. Then he prays for his disciples, that they would be one. He said, I've kept them. I've given them my word. I've kept them. And that's nice. But look at verse 20. I don't pray for these alone, but I pray also for those who will believe on me through their word. That's you and me. We believe on him through John's word. We believe on him through Matthew's word. We believe on him through the word of these disciples that was passed down eventually to Luke and to Mark. We believe on him through the testimony of those that had seen him. So he's now talking to us. No, excuse me. He's not talking to us. He's talking to the Father about us. Ooh. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. The glory that came down over the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. The glory that came down in 
the tabernacle of David in Mount Zion. The glory that came into the temple, God says, I'm going to give to them. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect, that means complete in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. That's one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. That statement says, and Jesus is talking to his Father, so you know there's no funny business going on here. That they may know, when they know that I'm in them, and you're in them, and you're in me, and, and you're in them, and they're, in other words, when they may know that you are one with them, and you are, and they are one with you, that they are one with me, and one with you, when they know that, they're going to realize that you love them just as much as you love me. This is Jesus. This says God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Right there. Black and white, or black and red as my Bible says. White and red. He, and the proof that he loves you is he's come to dwell in you. You may think you're a mess. You may think you're a disaster going somewhere to happen. But God has decided you're worth coming to physically dwell in you. It'll change how you handle yourself. Over in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Don't you understand? You are the temple, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit who has come from God. Now God's not limited by time and space and location. He'll dwell in and manifest himself to whomever will. Whoever's open and as much as you're open. Ephesians chapter 3. I saw this, these verses I have prayed over and over again for years. I've meditated on them. And I, the Spirit of God keeps telling me, there's something in here you haven't seen. There's something in here you haven't seen. There's something in here you haven't seen. Verse 15, well, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, not according to your ability, not according to your goodness, not according to your faithfulness, in fact, not according to anything about you at all, your name's not in here. According to the riches of His glory. Now just, we don't have time to spend much on it, but just let your mind go and imagine what the riches of His glory must be like. And Paul's saying, according to that, I've asked Him to do this. That according to the riches of His glory, that you be strengthened with might, through His Spirit in the inner man. The word strengthen means have a, a supernatural force in you through, with, and the word might means power. So that you might have a supernatural force in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why do we need the power of God in us to do this? 
to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Dwell. The word dwell there is a word that means to take up residence. It's kata or akita, which means I have a house that you've come down into. A house, a dwelling place. Where you're at home in. Where you reside. That we might become literally a dwelling place for Christ. That's why we have to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit because our minds are too small to grasp that. This is something that's been done by the Spirit of God in us. To be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. It takes faith to receive this. Faith is what allows you to believe something's real when it's contrary to your senses. Because all you've got to do is look in the mirror, remember how you acted over the last 48 hours, and you know Christ can't be dwelling in you. But God's Word says, when you came to Christ, God birthed His Spirit in you. So that's why you receive this by faith and not by looking at yourself and measuring how well you're doing. See, the devil likes you to do that, but that's not doing this by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, say me, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend or understand with all the saints, that's all of us together, what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, which passes your brain's ability to understand. Don't try to understand God's love with your mind. You can't. It's something that's received and appreciated through your heart, through your spirit. Look what God wants you to know about Him. Above everything else is the height and depth, height and breadth and length and depth of His love towards you and towards all. And to know, verse 19, that word know means by experience, not just by concept. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Wow. The tabernacle wasn't filled like that. Even Solomon's temple wasn't filled like that. That you, us together, may be filled Filled. Filled. Think what filled means. That means there's nothing else there. That means there's room for nothing else. That's not a little dabble, do you? That's not just barely getting by. That you be filled. You need to meditate on this. Be filled. I, me, you, us together. Be filled with all the fullness of of God. God's saying, I want to release myself in you. 
I want to release my love, my glory, my power. I want to release all that I am in you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why I've come inside of you so that I may be the presence of God in you. You are the temple of the presence of God. And look at the next, the next verse has to be in there or else we just shut down. Verse 20, now to him, not you, now to him who is able, now to him, because you how can this be? Because he's able. But, I'm with, but it's not talking about you, and now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. That word in Greek is the word that says to take something and throw it so far beyond something that you can't find it. Exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. So that's why it's beyond your understanding. Because when you come to the end of what your mind can understand about that, that's where God begins to work. That's where God begins to work. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think according to the power that comes out of heaven. No. According to the power that works in you. So the power to cause this to come about, the power to cause the glory of God and the presence of God, the reality of God in you, that power is already in you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But we walk around and think of ourselves as we're just sinners saved by grace. We're just this and we're not going to amount to this. And I just, you know, we're so aware of our weaknesses and our shortcomings. He didn't mention you in there at all about what you can do. All he talks in there about is what he's able to do. That you may be filled. This is his desire, is to fill you with all of his presence. And what we're going to look about next week as we're now going to look at, because of that, God's been able to do something that leads us into what true worship is. Let's pray. Father, we stand this morning in awe of you. As we read your words, our minds in some cases just seize up or close up or have trouble receiving it, which is why the apostle prayed that you would strengthen us by your spirit in our inner man, not our mind. That is why the apostles' prayer says that, that you do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think because you're not dealing in the realms we can think of or understand. You're dealing in a realm that we receive by faith and we walk in by faith. So help us to put our minds aside, our understandings of ourselves and our limited understanding of you and just receive this word for what it says and begin to call on you that Christ may dwell in his fullness in us. Father, in this day and age in which we live right now, I believe it's crucial that Christ dwell in his fullness in his church in a tangible way. And we've learned and we've studied and we've seen 
how strongly a desire and a passion it is for you to be here and to commune with us. I pray, Father, that for all of us, for me included, your spirit would continue to make open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope, this hope of this calling for our lives that was given to us when we came into Christ Jesus. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.